Our planet is under assault. Corporations that cannot see beyond their next quarterly earnings statement are emptying our oceans, clear-cutting our forests, and altering our climate. These same corporations repeatedly place their profits ahead of our safety and threaten our communities with their radioactive waste and toxic sludge. Greenpeace was formed to fight these corporations. We are Greenpeace. This is Greenpeace Radio. Welcome to Greenpeace Radio. I'm Kurt Davies. I'm here today with a very special friend, an old friend of mine, Ivor Miller. Uh, Ivor is a specialist in Afro-Cuban tradition. He is currently a senior fellow at the Smithsonian Museum of African Art. He just returned from two years in Nigeria as a Fulbright scholar. And we're going to talk about the connection between African religions and traditions and the forest how these traditions are rooted in the forest, how the people are connected to the forest by their religion, their music, their art, everything. Ivor, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kurt. Great to be here. So let's kick it right off. I mean, you've just come back from Nigeria, but you spent a lot of time early on in Cuba. Um, In Africa, the environment is under assault. I mean, you have these people of the rainforest who are being run out uh, still, you know, after hundreds of years of oppression being run out by the mighty dollar, by palm oil, by hydropower, all these things. What was it like being over there in recent years? In Nigeria? Well, uh, first of all, I really enjoy the place. I went there with a very specific mission. I started working in Cuba in 1991, um, essentially conducting oral history with elders who were custodians of African-derived culture. These are some of the gentlemen and women who were in their 90s. And <clears throat> after several years of that, I decided to go to the homeland, specifically Calabar, Nigeria, where many, many uh, people were enslaved and carried away, just to confirm what I was hearing in Cuba. And the, the recognition of the Cuban data in Calabar was so immediate that I was practically immediately initiated into the leading society of that those people, which is Ekbe. Ekbe means leopard in the ethnic language of the Calabar By people. data, you mean you'd collected stories yes, and recordings exactly. in Cuba. Often in African languages. So tell that story for a minute. So here's the, the, the slaves are brought from this Calabar region. I like region. to say enslaved Africans. Sorry. Yes. Enslaved Africans, indeed, were, were taken from their homeland in mm-hmm. West Africa, brought to Cuba, and with them they brought their traditions, their religions, but they had to hide them. Yes. Yes, so they were actually brought all over the Americas. Um, It's just that uh, Cuba had an extraordinary situation where there was a massive, after the Haitian Revolution, the sugar trade kicked off in the early 1800s, massive importation of Africans into Cuba, and so there was a huge demographic input and um, that uh, enabled people to preserve uh, the Lukumi um, slash Yoruba language, the Karabali, which is the, um, the language of Calabar, which is known as Abakwa, and the Congo languages. So um, these are maintained as ritual languages today. That means there's nobody's first language. But once you're initiated, you get to learn it. And the narratives are essentially talking about the African history, where people come from, and they maintain that identity in resistance to um, often the the modern educational systems don't teach much about African history. So the people use these cultures to maintain their own identity. And I can't tell you how powerful it was to go to Africa 
and have Africans say, yes, these are our people, and they were so excited, and it's actually created a revival in the Ekpe society in Calabar, the knowledge that the, uh, specifically in this case, the Cubans have maintained this stuff against um, a lot of very serious obstacles. In, in some cases, had they preserved it almost better than it had been preserved in Africa, or were there differences? Well, yeah, it's my uh, hypothesis that pre-colonial African history is maintained to a great extent in places like Cuba, because what happened in around the 1850s, Africans and the people they taught began to write down this knowledge in manuscripts, and those manuscripts are still there. They've never been uh, delivered to libraries. They're hidden by the masters of the culture, and I've been privileged enough to see some of them, and we're using them at, for comparative research, but essentially it's not necessarily an oral tradition. It, it is a written tradition, just as the Bible was once an oral tradition that was written down. Are there written manuscripts like that in Africa? No, they're not. I haven't found any yet. Um, and so that's why I'm saying that pre-colonial African history is maintained in Cuba. So we're bringing this information. We're basically repatriating knowledge back to Africans who have lost, um, lost a great deal of sense of their own history because of the force of colonialism. Um, the Europeans said that Africans had no history, and the Africans began to believe that. Right. by and large. And so um, the, the, that's why the, the Cuban data has been very important. And all of this culture is coming from the forest. And so we're, we're trying to bring together the cultural and the environmental struggles uh, because we need... <laughs> if, if we believe in human diversity, this is a very diverse thing, and we need those forests for our own oxygen. Let's hear a little bit about uh, one of these uh, songs or, or mm -hmm. prayers. What do you want to play for yeah, us? Yeah, so um, I said it's not an oral tradition. It's written down. But what the, what the initiates do is that they read these manuscripts and then they memorize them and perform them in ceremonials. So, so the ceremonies are like reenactments of African history. We're going to hear a track right now recorded in 1962 by the Abaqua master Victor Herrera. He was from Havana. And just after the revolution, a lot of very important recordings were made in the National Theater, and this is one of them. Victor Herrera is doing a ritual chant in the Abaqua language. Uh, in effect, he's um, recreating a ceremony that's still done in, in Calabar today. In when, Africa. In Africa. Uh -huh. When an elder dies, of an uh, elder member of the Ekbe society dies, it is believed that the leopard escapes from um, the temple back into the bush. And so... The whole community has to get together and bring the leopard, the mystic spiritual leopard, back into the, the town, which is really a symbol of their own autonomy. So let's hear it. Wow. Nice. So this is an example of a, a tradition, that, I mean, a, a religion becoming song, becoming a chant. 
How how are the um, when when you have taken this language back? Is it is it exactly preserved? I mean, is the is the language identical to what is spoken today? in those African cultures? Do they recognize it completely, or is, it, is there evolution? You're talking about hundreds of years of a pause here. I mean, you've taken this out of context and preserved it in Cuba for hundreds of years, completely divorced from the origin. They can still understand it. It's not the same language. What we have is it, um, and it's the same thing with the Yoruba. We have Yoruba daily language, and then we have a sacred language known by the Babalao diviners, and we're going to talk about them too. Uh, because they, all this culture is coming out of the rainforest. And um, so there's these sacred languages that are done by initiates. And so those are the languages that have been preserved. So um, the same thing in the, the Ekpe society has its own special language, which I've had to learn some of it. And it is um, very evident in the Abakwa language. But, of course, there's been many changes. And what we have is uh, people from a wide swath of, uh, of area, of a hinterland coming together in an urban space in a place like Havana or uh, Bahia, Brazil, and they gather together and they began to create something new based on what each one of them brought from Africa. You understand? So it's, yeah. a, it's a mixture of... There, there are many different languages um, put together in this Cuban Abaqua language, and we have been able to recognize about 30% of it as the ethic language of Calabar. And then we've also found um, specifically Calabar, uh, uh, terms from other languages. The problem is this uh, cross-river area, of, uh, cross-river region of southeastern Nigeria, southwestern Cameroon, is one of the most diverse l- places linguistically on the planet, and linguists have still uh, have not dealt fully with these languages, so there's a lot of incomplete knowledge in Africa itself. So... What I'm trying to do right now is set up teams of scholars to deal with this. We'll be back in a minute with more from Ivor Miller. You're listening to Greenpeace Radio. Welcome back to Greenpeace Radio. This is Kurt Davies. I'm here with Ivor Miller, a senior fellow at the Smithsonian Museum of African Art. Uh, Ivor, we were talking about this uh, cultural traditions, traditions that were were preserved in Cuba after the slave days. Now you're bringing them back to Africa, to Nigeria and other countries. And the connections within this, uh, these religions and these, these uh, uh, cultural memories to the connection to the forest, the fact that there are uh, symbols and important icons uh, that, that are part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So, for example, the Leopard Society, of which I'm a member, is called Ekpe. Um, the, there are also crocodile societies, elephant societies, and many of the. And what are the? Why are these animals chosen? Well, because they're powerful. Be- they're powerful beings, and so, for example, the leopard is an animal that walks at night. It sees in the dark when most people can't see. So, therefore, it's it's considered to have mystic vision. It's it's the powers of the unknown, and so the Ekbe Society represents um, the Council of Elders who uh, are basically police the community. They, um, any uh, things that are, that, are, that are brought to court, they deal with it, and they put sanctions. And many of the sanctions were about the protection of the land and the forest, and that's actually still happening today in Nigeria and Cameroon. If there's a land dispute, the Ekpe leaf will go there, and people will know no one can go there until the council has settled it. So, and in hundreds of years ago, uh, these cultures had 
uh, you said sacred groves or sacred mm-hmm. valleys yes. in the forest, places where no one took anything. It yes. was just a place. It was almost a church, every, a, a temple. Every, every community had their sacred forest, which was prohibited from anybody but priests of that village to go there. How do you know that? Is it in the songs? or? Uh, well, this was well documented by some of the early anthropologists, and it's just generally well known. And many, uh, I, I should say every community in the forest area had their own animal totem that they um, they wouldn't kill or they would treat specially. And I've recorded many elders uh, in Nigeria in my last uh, trip talking about their own, you know, um, in one Ibibio village, they were, they, monkeys used to play with the children and because they, no one could kill them. And all of that has changed very tragically because of the colonial process and... Um, overpopulation, uh, there's no family planning, um, and, and the, it, part of the colonial mission there was to cut down the forest to bring civilization. And I've actually, Talk about that more. I've actually got um, some quotes about this on my blog. It's Dr. Ivor Miller slash blogspot. We'll put uh, a link up on, on Yeah, that. I've got um, some wonderful uh, descriptions of the of the early forest in Cameroon and Nigeria and how the colonists had the idea of cutting them down literally to bring light to the people with the metaphor that that light is civilization. And so the process really started there and it has not stopped till today. So was and the colonial the colonial forces that came in, I mean, some of that was Christianity, was missionaries trying to exert religion on people and uh, civilize them, yes, right? Well, the missionaries came there. The Africans, at least in Calabar, asked missionaries to come in because they wanted skills to learn how to read and write, to do business. But the, uh, the church people came in and taught them about God, which they already knew about. So there was, um, there was a, a real misconception of what the missionaries were going to do there. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, you know, and then there's the, in today's Nigeria, there's a, there's a huge wave of Pentecostalism which is really attacking the traditional values. And, and so there's, there's a lot of forces attacking these traditional cultures. So it's still hidden in, oh, yes. in yeah. Nigeria, mm-hmm. the, these religious traditions. They're these, still there. They're still there. But they're still there, but fewer and fewer people are interested. They want to be hip-hop. They want to go to the cities. They want money. And so these traditional values, which were really about living in balance with the forest, are extremely endangered. So what's also endangering, and we know, you know there's a long history of uh, parasites coming into Africa, looking for mm-hmm. minerals, looking for uh, the oil, the the you know the the, the wealth, uh, the natural wealth mm-hmm. of that of that continent, uh, you know from Shell in Nigeria, Exxon's in there. The Chad Cameroon pipeline is a is a famous case study of you know a pipeline being run in there with uh, international finance backing to extract oil for some company to make money uh, going out. Let's listen to some more music um, from that, uh, from this area, from uh, your recordings in Cuba. Okay, well done. <laughs> Osai, Osai, Mariwo, Mariwo, Dea, 
Beautiful. We just heard this track for the God or Arisha Osain. This was recorded in Cuba, I believe, by Lydia Cabrera in the 1950s. It's been recently released on Smithsonian Folkways. Uh, Osain is the divinity, the Orisha of healing, of the medicinal arts. And essentially, this God represents the ethno-botanical knowledge brought by Africans to the Americas during the slave trade. And it's still very much a part of the practice. Uh, in this case, it's in the Yoruba-speaking tradition coming from southwest Nigeria and the Republic of Benin uh, and, and, and that region. So this is in the Yoruba-speaking language, but every African group that came to the Americas and uh, maintained their knowledge has their own version of a medicinal god. The Congos, Kikongo-speaking people have it in Central Africa and the Congo River Basin, the Calabar people... Uh, and many others have their own uh, version and variety. So there is a lot of knowledge of um, these forest-based practices in the music of the Americas, whether it's Haiti, Brazil, Venezuela, and so on and so on. So, and the the singer, or they're, they're naming plants. They're naming. It's it's almost like the 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 uh, shelf of the pharmacy, the herbal mm -hmm. pharmacy, or the. Yes. Well, this particularly comes up in later songs, which we're going to hear, like Celia Cruz did Yerbero, the, the herbalist. And we have a Calypso version of that. Basically, the, the street vendor who's got the herbs straight from the garden and how they can heal us. Right. So, and how was it that, um, or how much has it been studied? I mean, they, of course, couldn't bring their plants with them mm -hmm. when they were enslaved. Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah. How did they adapt to a new botany? Uh, very profound question and one that I cannot fully answer, but I can say that um, the great Cuban scholar Lydia Cabrera wrote her, uh, her most famous book is called El Monte, which is translated as the forest. And she talks about the three major African groups, the Central African so-called Congos, the Calabari, the Abaqua, and the Yoruba-speaking um, Ifa and Ocha people and their, um, their knowledge and essentially, the Africans made metaphorical associations, either on the uses of the, you know, the, the chemical uses of the plant, which they figured out, largely thanks to the American ind indigents who were here mm -hmm. and, and teaching them, because a lot of this was happening by the maroon people, the people who ran away from the plantations. So, right. uh, very important story. I'd love to talk more about that, but well, but, um, but it, it, it draws this larger frame of uh, that. Aboriginal people or Native people everywhere have this knowledge. Anybody who's living in a place uh, con more connected to nature than we are today knows what plants are good for you, which plants are poisonous, which plants help you and heal you. And there is, you know, vast storehouses of knowledge in rainforest communities and, you know, any, any place that people are more connected to nature from the Arctic to the Amazon. Um, people know what's good for them and what, what helps and what hurts uh, in nature. So it's fascinating that they actually uh, contain that knowledge in their song and in their, their stories yes. uh, to, to carry it along. So uh, often the African-derived 
uh, community traditions in the Americas are described as purely religion. It's religion, religion. Well, I look at it more as a, it's a, these are containers to maintain knowledge of history, identity of one's origins in the continent, but also uh, things like medicinal knowledge, um, healing practices. Right. And some of them are also political institutions, like the ICPE. It's yeah. oversimplistic to say it's a religion. Yeah. It's really, it, yeah. you spoke about it as a, a sort of a, a whole system of values and knowledge. Exactly. You know, this yes. is uh, the embodiment of the culture mm-hmm. is, has also religious elements. Yes. You know, I, I was reading the book you gave me that talked about the, um, the origin uh, story uh, where, you know, the, the gods come down and it's similar to a Christian mm-hmm. myth of, you know, of, you know, the, one of the gods is a, a, a sculptor and mm-hmm. makes the first human out of this clay. This is Obatala, the, Obata. the, the creator of humans. And, and this the, is in the Yorba tradition. In Yorba. Yeah. And, they, and then the gods, actually, instead of going back to wherever they were from, um, transform into animals, which mm-hmm. establish that connection yeah. with nature. So yeah. the gods are the animals at that point. Yeah. Can you well, explain that? In many traditional African communities, and particularly the ones where I've been working in, in the Cross River of Nigeria, uh, there is... The, what is a community? The community are the living people. The community are the ancestors who are in communication with the living. And the community is also the land that people live on. So, And there's no real boundaries there. It's all uh, collective. Fantastic. We're, you're listening to Greenpeace Radio. It's Kurt Davies. I'm here with Ivor Miller, and we will be back in a minute. You're back at Greenpeace Radio. This is Kurt Davies. I'm here with Ivor Miller from the Smithsonian Museum of African Art. Uh, Ivor, we were talking about the, you know, your work. Uh, you've been working for 20 years now, collecting some of this knowledge in Cuba and in Africa. Uh, these uh, traditions that go back hundreds of years uh, that were stored in the Americas, and now you're sort of bringing them back and providing a bridge between the two uh, cultures. Uh, talk about your your work and what you're doing. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, well, m- many of us who know the uh, Africa and its diaspora know the Yoruba situation very well because the Yorubas have been very um, organized in promoting their own culture, their history, writing in their own language. Other groups are equally important, but they're less known. And so I met elders in Cuba from the Calabar area. They began to teach me. I whose ancestors came from Yeah, their Calabar, ancestors came right. directly from Calabar, and they were telling me their, basically their community history. I worked on that for many years, and I took it back to Calabar in 2004 to do, um, you know, to validate or to see how accurate it was and so on. It was immediately recognized by elders in the Ekpe Society. I was initiated to basically allow me to do this work, and I've been doing this comparative research ever since. So had there ever been, I mean, obviously the people, you can't leave Cuba very easily and go back there on your own. So these folks in in Cuba, had there ever been a connection that they had made to their ancestors in Africa? Well, they know where they came from, but they didn't have the... Physically, did they ever go, did anybody ever gone one way or the other? Um, uh, Yes, there is a long story of that, particularly after slavery ended in the 1880s, some... um, some Africans who were in Cuba and Brazil went back, especially right. to places like Lagos, and there are other examples. It's a very important story, but um, by and large, there's been a... Um, it's not fluid. It's not fluid. So and, tell me what you're doing now. And it's also access to money and, and, and so on. Right. Um, most, uh, most people, when, uh, when they leave, they go to Europe or something right. to make money to send back to their family. 
So I'm in a privileged position. I'm basically helping this encounter. Um, we had our first encounter in uh, Brooklyn, New York in 2001 between the Ethic National Association, those are people from Calabar, and some Cuban representatives. And the interesting thing about all of these things is that the Cubans and the Nigerians and Cameroons do not speak the same colonial language. Nigerians are English, Cameroons are French and English, mm -hmm. Cubans are Spanish. They cannot talk um, right. everyday language together. They speak in their in inherited codes. They can chant ritual phrases and be understood. Wow. They can play drums, play bells, dance in masquerades. And the masquerades are all made, you know, the instruments and masquerades are all made on forest plant-based materials and animals. Right. And these, this is a form of literacy. So a masquerade is designed in such a way that it doesn't change like a carnival mask would. But they're very masquerade is a whole costume. Yeah, body masquerade. Body, yeah. right. And body suit and, and so on. Uh, it's a symbolic thing. And so it's a, it's, it's a form of literacy and they can speak that way. So we've been basically doing these fe cultural festivals as a method of communication and learning and sharing. So after confirming. New York, what was the next encounter? Yeah, we had one in New York. Then the um, Obong, the King of Calabar, came to Michigan in 2003. We did it there. Uh, the next one, I went to Calabar 2004, was initiated. The governor of the state paid for the trip of a couple of Cubans. We had a festival there. Then in 2007, the Museke Branli um, funded, thanks to a very close friend of ours who organized it, uh, a meeting between the Nigerians and the Cubans. Four wow. days on stage. Historic stuff. Where was that? That was in Paris in 2007. Fantastic. Now, um, we're about to do another one here in Washington. The date right now is November 28th at 4 p.m. in the Museum of African Art. Um, we're going to have Cam Cameroonian and Cuban drummers. I'm going to do a little presentation. And, nice. uh, we, you know, the, the basic thing is we need money to, to bring the all-star cast together and yeah. do, do the real thing. That's but not free. Now, this is all about performance. But the interesting thing is that this is not really oral history because the Cubans wrote the, the Africans in Cuba wrote their histories down in the 1850s and 60s, and they're kept in manuscripts mm. among initiates only. They, they're not in the libraries anywhere. They're not published. So we're kind of there's a secret, hidden, written history that's behind all this. Describe these books. What are they? Look they're like? basically big bank ledger books, right? And they're, they're beautiful manuscript handwriting and drawings of masquerades and. Uh, um, the symbolic writing system of that area in Africa that's called Nsibidi, a huge treasure house of information, and also ethnobotanical knowledge. Wow. So basically... And, I'm and does one writer me. pass it on to the next? Exactly, or? yeah. It's taught in apprenticeship systems piece by piece. And this also happens in the Congo, Central African traditions, and Yoruba also. So essentially, w we have the possibility of writing pre-colonial African history based on some of this right. stuff. And so that's we're bringing the two people, the two peoples together, and because this culture is all from the forest, we have a real opportunity to have a conversation about environmental issues. Right, about, because protecting the forest, these people are from the forest. the The entire culture is connected to the integrity of the forest, and uh, obviously, wiping out the forest wipes out the culture. We've seen that before. So you wanted to play a song um, yes, recorded in... Uh, yeah, thank you very much. So <clears throat> after the Paris event, 
the Cubans learn songs from the Africans and vice versa. So some of the Cubans who are based in New York have a, a, a group they called Eyenison Kama, which Eyenison means Africa, Africa speaks. And this is a recording in response to the interaction between the Africans and the Cubans, and this is called Neri. Let's give it a hear. So explain what we were listening to. What's the what's, what's that song about? Okay, we just heard a song called Neri from uh, the group Eyenison Kama. It came out in 2009 in New York, a response to the Paris meeting between the Cubans and the Ekbe people of Nigeria. Uh, Neri is a song about the power of the water. We've talked a lot about the forest. Well, the Cross River area is a lot of water, mangroves. And um, according to the beliefs of the Cubans and the West Africans, uh, in a place called Usagare, a few centuries ago, was where a, a princess went to the water and found a very important instrument that became fundamental to the creation of the Ekpe Leopard Society. So this song is another historical, um, it's a way of uh, recording history, and they're talking about this origin. And this area today is known as the Bakasi Peninsula. It's been in the news a lot lately because of the... It, uh, it used to be Nigerian territory, and then it was shifted to Cameroon. There's been a big um, kind of fight over that, but it's about the petroleum there that's in the ground. Right. <clears throat> so the, this area is sacred land for the traditional people in the area, and it's um, potentially being overrun by a lot of militants, violence, um, petroleum issues. Yeah, there's a massive petroleum industry that is uh, across that entire region, of course, and all the petroleum comes down to the coastline to be put on ships and sent around the world. Um, and there's uh, just spills have been happening forever, huge disasters where people get burned. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the images are horrifying yeah. of living within an oil an industrial complex. And there is also a lot of illegal, uh, you know, big boats coming from overseas, particularly China and Japan, uh, fishing in these areas, which are not even international. They're national, but Nigeria doesn't have a real uh, Navy. Uh, Greenpeace yeah. has been out there, actually. So, we have some stuff uh, people can find on our website yeah. about that. There are these ghost ships, in fact. These people have been out there living on these ships, fishing basically as islands for many years, and that people just come and take the fish off, and they don't ever leave the ship. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, pirate fishing, mm -hmm. uh, stealing, and, and taking the oil, it's sort of... You know, this, this parasitism, this uh, colonialism, corporate colonialism that's going on now, as your work shows, you know, there's a long legacy of taking from Africa, whether it was the humans, the slave trade, uh, or the minerals today, the, the palm oil, the, palm oil uh, the, the oil, the palm oil, whatever it was, whatever it is, um, it, it, Africa seems to get run over. Yeah. So back to your, um, you know, to, the, to this... Uh, uh, tradition of worshiping the water yeah. and knowing the knowing um, the connection there. As you've told me, the people were ch as slavery came in, people 
fled that coastal mangrove region That's and right. went further yes. into the forest. Yes, well, there's movement all up and down, but some of the people uh, who, are, who are on the coast now, uh, even today, and I'm in, I, I'm in touch with them, live in the forest areas near to the Corrupt National Forest and the Rumpy Hills. It's a it's volcanic region. And um, mm -hmm. so, as this song is saying, the water is sacred. So, we, we, uh, in the Ekpe society, the land and the water are both sacred areas and they work together spiritually. And the belief is the ancestors are there in the water. Excellent. You're listening to Greenpeace Radio. We'll be back in a minute. This is Greenpeace Radio. This is Kurt Davies. I'm back with Ivor Miller. And we are talking, uh, you know, through your work in Cuba and in Africa. Um, let's get into the ethnobotany, the, the basis of these traditions and the link to the forest. Um, you know, we've talked about uh, the, the, some of the, uh, in, the traditions and the, the worship of the, the water, the sacred trees. There's a deeper thing here, which is that the people are connected inherently to the forest. There is a, you know, within their traditions. Say when. Yes, uh, I, I don't like, like to use the word worship too much. Uh, it's really about respect and reverence and acknowledgement of the power of the environment. Because if you were in a forest community living and there was live leopards around, yeah. you would fear and you would have respect. It's not a matter of really of worshiping so much. No, that's very important. And so, uh, And the crocodiles in the water, they are feared. They're very dangerous things. And so... Um, the Africans lived in this situation, and uh, it became part of their um, their whole life way process. Well, this is the same in the Arctic. You better know what the polar bear does, mm -hmm. or it will take you out. Yeah. And you better know how to handle a walrus mm -hmm. that's ten times as big as you are. Mm -hmm. If you're in the Amazon, you better know where the piranha are and yes. where, you know, yes. where the snakes are. Mm -hmm. um, this is not. I, I think that's really an important clarification that. In cultures where people are inherently connected to nature, which is less and less common today, but where these places exist, uh, there's a natural uh, upbringing. I mean, you're, you're taught as a child to respect certain places and not to go certain places or to uh, know what, what trees not to cut down. And when your people are buried in the ground and then your food grows up from the ground... You, it's obvious that there's a relationship between the fertility of the land, your relationship with your ancestors. And so all this is really, I don't really think of it as religion, but it's just part of the life ways that are um, organic to the environment. Right. And a lot of this knowledge was carried across into the Americas, and it's still maintained um, through great resistance among communities who are in, in the Candomblé of Brazil in the Vodun of Haiti, in the Shango of Trinidad, and, and, and the Abaqua and the Congo Palomonte of Cuba and so on. Um, they're still there. They're being perpetuated. And it's my hope and, and my work seeks to build connections between the very well-intentioned environmentalists who are often college-trained and not part of these community systems right. and the knowledge in these community systems because... They can both help each other work with the African communities who um, often 
you know, don't understand why these white NGOs people are coming to tell them to stay away from their own forest. Right. And they don't get it. So um, that's why cultural festivals, which I would like to do in, 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 um, in these areas in Africa, to bring some of the diaspora people back to share this knowledge, I think will be very useful and practical. And it builds that connection. You're exactly right. You can go into any place, and now you have national boundaries that have run over the natural boundaries and the historic cultural boundaries. The, the national boundaries are completely artificial, but they can interrupt the flow of information or the regulation of illegal trade in, in trees or you know, illegal trade in species or other behaviors. But in order to connect to the people in order to protect nature if you just want to go in and say i want to protect that animal or this special forest you better know who's living there right. and you better know who's dependent right. on that place right because my one of my worries is that um environmentalists or conservationists are using the kind of standard yosemite model which was right. get rid of the people and Make save the land park. well the people are part of the forest no doubt and so it's very important to work with the people and uh, and help them understand how preser preservation is good for them and their the, the, uh, their children and, and grandchildren. That was a track called Hawe by the great Arsenio Rodriguez from 1953. Arsenio was from a Congo-derived um, family in Matanzas, Cuba, and a lot of his music is uh, about and coming from the practices of the African descendants in Cuba. This uh, Hawe is a tree. It's a sacred tree. And this whole song is about the... The, the tree is to be revered for the spirit in that tree, and it cannot be cut down unless in, um, traditional rites are performed to ask the permission of that tree. So this is the one of many, many examples of songs in the African-derived Americas all over the Western Hemisphere that are uh, perpetuating and teaching this ethnobotanical knowledge and I think that it's incredibly important that environmentalists harness this information and understand to be um, culturally orientated to the communities that they're working within. Right. And you do have, uh, you know, unfortunately, in the world of commerce, the, the global commercial uh, attacks on these forests are intense. You have extremely valuable species in Cameroon, for example, in the ebony trees in becoming more and more rare. And, you know, without ebony, you can't have a clarinet. You don't have the fretboard on an expensive guitar. You, and literally, there is a finite amount of this plant on earth. Um, in fact, not all of it is even quality that once you cut the tree down after you've killed the tree, only then do they know 
if it's clear enough and free of defects in order to make a, a very high-class instrument. The, the guitar companies are now catching on to this. The music makers of the world are catching on and realizing that we need to protect these forests and also provide a sustainable uh, living, you know, through protecting these forests. And this is happening from Canada to Africa to Brazil. Um, there's a way that it can work. Uh, and I think that the knowledge, actually the knowledge of the trees, the knowledge of the forest also includes um, a knowledge of the ecosystem of where that tree grows and where it doesn't grow. So you can't come in and plant a, a plantation. You can't plant ebony trees in rows like corn. They grow in certain places. They grow very far apart. Same with mahogany in, in Brazil. It doesn't grow in big clumps like a pine forest. It grows very far apart. But these trees are worth tens of thousands of dollars each. So it's it's stolen from the forest like gold. Mm-hmm. Um, your experience, you've seen some of the uh, you, your pictures of logging trucks coming out. Um, there's an ongoing rape and pillage right now in that forest. Yeah, there's a lot of illegal timbering happening along the Cross River. And uh, I know because I know uh, people who are working there on this issue. And... Um, I think about 3% of the original tropical rainforest of Nigeria is still there. And the only part that's still standing is in the Cross River area. And with one exception of the Oshun Grove, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, where the Austria, uh, Austrian artist Suzanne Wenger built um, art, um, walls and statues essentially to block the people who are coming in to destroy wow. this sacred site. And now UNESCO has recognized it. And um, so uh, international intervention is essential in this whole uh, spectrum. It's, it's just a matter of how to do it. Suzanne was very culturally sensitive, and, and it worked. In, in addition to the logging, of course, you have hydropower, you know, people trying to build big dams and flood valleys that are now forested and are now homes to people. You have people uh, coming in trying to plant massive uh, palm oil plantations, um, pretty much anything you can think of on top of the history of oil exploitation. Well, this has been a fascinating um, program. Um, Look forward to more from you and hearing more about your work. Uh, We'll put links on the website so people can find their way to your work. Yeah. And um, thanks for being here. Thank you. We are just skimming the surface with this thing. We're going to end with Celia Cruz, La Reina, singing Yerbero Moderno. It's an example of a botanical song, and she's just talking about the herbs that are being sold on the street, which is just the community practices of the Afro-Americas and the herbal knowledge. Thank you. Thank you, Ivor Miller from uh, the Smithsonian Museum of African Art, a senior fellow there. This is Kurt Davies. You've been listening to Greenpeace Radio. As always, you can find our stuff on iTunes, subscribe to our podcast, and uh, listen to everything on greenpeaceradio.org.